Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Neil Sahoda, IBM Master Inventor, United Nations AI Advisor, author of the book, Own the AI Revolution, and professor at UC Irvine. Today, we're gonna to be talking about AI, obviously Neil's topic, specifically discussing how leaders can lead a hybrid workforce, not hybrid work from home, but a hybrid workforce. So using AI as the companion to accomplish work and managing for the risks while creating the opportunities available. So Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me back, Marie. Let's start with this idea of hybrid workforce. I'm not sure people are yet using that term or using it widely and using it in the same way. So can you help us level set? What are we walking into, especially with all the hype and stop AI for now versus it's out of the bottle and there is no stopping it? Well, Maureen, imagine that you're in the office now and some of your colleagues are AI robots or perhaps even your, your manager or your upline management are AI robots. Some people might be really excited about that, depending on who their current <laughs> managers are. I don't know. I think some people are probably going to be like, that's going to be really hard to make excuses about why I was late to work. <laughs> that is not as far away as I think people realize. Today, we already have customer service systems. You know, people are fielding phone calls and they have these AI tools that are actually listening to the call. And so as the CSR is doing their work, you see the AI kind of prompt them maybe with questions or they have like an emoji saying you're doing a great job or poor job or the customer's getting frustrated. And so there's a lot of real-time evaluation and feedback. GE, they've started a whole new system called Predicts. So now some of their manufacturing plants, the entire thing is scheduled by an AI system. So both the human and robot workers take their orders from, well, an AI robot. In a plant, so I'm a human, at least far as I know, how would that look? Would it prompt me to go do certain activities at certain points in time? Similar to how you'd have a human boss. It basically they're assigning you tasks and deadlines. And so that's really the expectation. If you have challenges, might be a little bit different when you seek help because like the predict system, you can't like really have a back and forth conversation with, but they're also focused more on very structured tasks that are kind of well-known. You think about knowledge work, though, Marine, a little bit of a different story in that transition. Let's talk about what AI is right now. And I, I realize even by the time this airs, it'll be a little bit different. But the idea that it is an algorithm, it's learning, but it's a math-based algorithm. There's a lot of truth in that. I think the big distinction here, though, is that we don't really program AI. We give it something we call ground truths, so rules on how to make decisions. And then we give it lots and lots of data. And so it kind of studies the data, draws insights, and that's how it kind of wires its neural network. So someone's not programming it or saying, here's the algorithm, it's developing on its own, sort of similar like we kind of wire our brain synapses. The analogy that I'm using, and I would love for you to correct me, my partner has a Tesla and he's one of the people who signed up for the self-driving app. So when it first started driving, all this stuff showed up on the screen and it drove through median strips and traffic circles like right through the middle. And I equated it to a 14-year-old learning to drive, right? Little kids don't yet understand everything about the road. They can get going down a freeway and it was brilliant at slowing down and speeding up and not hitting cars while you're changing the radio station. But it wasn't brilliant at nuance. My assumption is some of our AI companions similarly are like our young interns when they first get started because they have to build that nuanced thinking and they haven't yet. Spot on, Maureen. Every time I answer any something new, it's literally like a child. It's like a three-year-old. So you have to give it some rules on making decisions, let it learn, let it try, and teach it. Oh, that's right. That's wrong. Don't try down the center divider. But it learns at a much faster rate. Whereas, you know, they always say we need about 10,000 hours as humans. With machines, they just usually need a few weeks. So 
kind of running your Tesla example for a second, it's obviously got a lot better. But let's say you're coming around, you get your autopilot on, you've got this kind of weird, bendy road, and it's not quite good at right, so you grab the steering wheel, right? So you kind of course correct, so it learns. Second time you go through it, you kind of do the same thing. The third time, it's got it mastered. But here's the power is that once your Tesla has learned how to do that, every Tesla has learned how to do that. So you get not just the accelerated learning, but you get kind of the crowdsourced learning as well. Unlike people's teenagers, they may wish that all teenagers could be crowdsourced. <laughs> well, that's, that's the interesting challenge when it comes to this. That's one thing we should all be cautious of is the expectations that the AI already knows how to do all these things. It doesn't work that way. And there's not like one Uber AI out there that everything we've taught it, it knows all that. There's not even one like chat GPT that knows all the stuff that's been done. At this point, there's probably a million different versions of chat GPT that has learned different things. So can you say more about that? Because there are a couple things that strike me. I may be telling chat GPT, don't drive through the median strip. Somebody else may want chat GPT to drive through the median strip because they don't want it to succeed. Not that they care about me on the other end, but there are people who are delighted to misguide the AI. Can you respond to that? And also the idea that there are thousands of chat GPTs, not one instance. So it's not like my Tesla learns based on the third time. Chat GPT is different. I'll answer the second question first. There are lots of different instances because you're paying for it, you're developing your own like secret models, you're using your own data. You don't want anybody else to benefit from that. So everyone kind of has, I should say everyone, but most people have their own private instance. If you're not paying for ChatGPT, you're part of that public instance. So you're sharing all that with everybody else. And that's how a lot of these actually AI systems and models work because it's not about patents or anything like that. It's about trade secrets. That's one big thing that people have to actually understand. Going back to the other question about, well, could someone teach ChatGPT that it's cool to drive down the center divider? Absolutely. That's the thing about AI. It only knows what we've taught it. So if you tell it that, hey, that's cool, it's cool to drive on sidewalks, it doesn't know any different. If you tell it the only trusted use source is the National Enquirer, guess what happens? These things are just tools. It's about how we choose to wield them. And some people, unfortunately, are going to misuse or abuse them. We saw that with Microsoft a few years ago when they launched a Twitter bot called Tbot. They basically trained it up to like a 13-year-old teenage girl, thought it was a great social experiment, first among the IC. And 24 hours later, they had to shut down Tbot because it was a Nazi, a racist, a sexist, because just a handful of people taught it some really bad things. They intentionally tried to corrupt it. And it worked. Yeah, it doesn't take much. Uh, most people, most people, I think, I think are, are good, good intention, but it's that 5% of bad actors, actors that can that really, really muck, muck everything, everything up. So the idea of crowdsourcing is an important element in open AI, that it is open source. It is. That's actually why you see things like Dolly 2 and ChatGPT, a lot of real traction in the last half year or so. These are generative AI systems, and generative AI has actually been around for about nine years. Back then, I was working with Alex the Kid. He's a generative AI to create music. But people were using this to kind of you know design new types of urban transportation. Of course, some people were using it for defakes. But because of the crowdsourcing that OpenAI did, it kind of reached a point where these tools like ChatGPT could do everyday things that people need. A good friend of mine, she was telling me that her son is actually using ChatGPT for job hunting, taught ChatGPT skills, work experience, job post. ChatGPT generates the resume and the cover letter specifically for that job post. And he's 11 for 11 and getting interviews. We are doing a couple things that I'm really excited about. One, because it's taken a task I don't want to do. So we have videos in our online training and they're outdated because, you know, things are outdated two weeks after you film them. And I don't like doing videos. So we now have FOMO. And as of today, my avatar looks like me, but sounds like a robot. But one of our team members now has my voice clone working. So in the next week, we'll be able to update our videos with Maureen's avatar. So that's one. But the other is we have a book coming out. And we use ChatGPT to go out and take content from our first 10 books and our 400 podcasts and boil it down and give us a first draft for the book. 
Now, the amount of editing we've done, there are not many words from the first draft still in place, but it gave us some interesting synthesis of our work different than we had envisioned that was a really useful start. Because for me, having written 10 books and some of them fairly in-depth, this was supposed to be an essentials book. Everything to me is essential. So ChatGPT removed a bunch of stuff that I thought was essential and in some cases did a really nice job. Now, in other cases, to your point, some of the nuance that is essential, it also removed. What you're talking about is, is pretty typical. The, these tools like ChatGPT are not meant to replace us. They're good at kind of doing some of that research and coming up with that rough first draft, like get us 30 to 70% of the stuff that we need. And then we got to kind of do the refinement and the polishing. And this is a really good example of where we're really moving towards. It's not natural intelligence versus artificial intelligence. We're actually moving towards hybrid intelligence, where we're trying to augment our own human capabilities with machine abilities to take advantage of the strengths like AI brings to the table with our own. And when it comes to AI, especially generative AI, it's great at like generating or producing, but not creating. And that's where we still come in, the ability to imagine, think, first of a kind. You know, this whole thing about prompt engineering, that's really the trigger for these things. You don't have like ChatGPT just sitting there by itself thinking, I'm totally bored, I'm gonna write a book. We tried a lot of different prompts and specifically citing our work. So go to these texts and these podcasts. Don't just go out to the internet and pull whatever stuff is there because some stuff is good and some stuff is not. And we also asked it, even though it's citing our work, to cite the work that it pulled because some of it actually went outside of the instructions we gave it and it cited other stuff. So it appears to have gone to other sources. Well, that's interesting and not surprising because, you know, everyone's kind of labeling GPT like the Google killer, that you don't have to do a Google search anymore and go through a bunch of different pages. ChatGPT can actually synthesize that. I experienced this firsthand where I was asked to do a fireside chat when they were about to introduce me, they actually said they had ChatGPT research me and wrote the intro bio. So they were reading it and I was like, well, that's pretty good. But it actually came up with some stuff I just, I had forgotten about. And it was really good. I'm like, I even asked for a copy. But then during the fireside chat, the moderator even said like, okay, in full disclosure, every question I have was also written by ChatGPT. And most of those questions were, they were spectacular. They were really well thought out, deeply researched. There were a couple of really funky questions, but, you know, again, if you can get 70% of the way there, that's pretty good. This is like using an intern or a young employee. They can go research and do a great job of reiterating what Google says. Somebody submitted me for an award, and so I asked it to write my award application, and it said I was the CIO of Ohio Health and told me how much I managed. Somehow got that one wrong. It wrote much better stuff about me than I would write about myself. It's a little less biased. Most of us are a little self-depreciating. <laughs> we have a good sense then of some of the limitations of AI. Let's talk a little bit about the future of work, because it seems like AI is going to be a big part of what the workplace looks like in even next year, but three years, five years, it's going to be potentially dramatically different. People always ask me, like, what are those jobs going to be? Because, you know, historically, you know, the job, you know, the tasks, activities, so you can figure out the skills. It's kind of a backwards approach now. The jobs of tomorrow are being incubated right now. The truth is, is we actually know the five skills every job is pretty much going to need. And we should be teaching those five skills. They're problem solving or critical thinking. They're the essential skills, communication, collaboration, negotiation. Third is creative thinking finding new ways of doing things. Fourth is understanding technological capabilities. So you don't have to know how to build an AI system. You have to know the capabilities that brings forth so you can apply it. And fifth is some domain to actually put the four skills to use. The challenge is, you know, you look at some of those, and at least three of those we don't really teach in our educational system. We don't have great corporate training on some of these things. Can we get ready? Yeah, because we know what they are. Everyone thinks you have more time to make these changes than we really do. You know, people are like, well, okay, I get it. That's like 10, 15 years away. And the truth is it's probably two or three years away. 
I've realized that not everyone has an avatar and a voice clone yet. But if I can do it and I'm not on the bleeding edge, then other people will be doing it soon. I've got a really good friend. He's 80. He's very successful. Got plenty of money. He called me up in January and he's like, I was playing around with ChatGPT. I've got a whole new idea that could help transform the entertainment industry. Here's like an 80-year-old guy. He's already thinking about like unretiring and pursuing this. That's amazing. That's fantastic. But it shows you how rapidly things are going to change. Because you're going to have a lot of people that are going to be like kind of jumping in as much as first movers or first drivers. The other piece of that for the folks who are not jumping in quickly, who are saying it's 10 to 15 years down the road, I'm 50, I can coast. No, I know that you want to try to run the clock out to retirement. Probably not going to happen. You need to have a plan B. That's for sure. I get it at that age and you have a family. It's hard to go back to school for several years, but you start figuring out what you can do or be one of the drivers, you know, lead the change. I'd like to have the option to work for another decade. So my plan is to stay as current as I can so that I have the choice. Exactly. And that's where a lot of people are struggling. As leaders, where should I spend my time so that I stay current and I become one of the influencers rather than the influenced or left behind? I think just being an entrepreneur, maybe an entrepreneur in general, you're always thinking about pain points. Where are the problems and what can I do about them? And you got to have to strip off the blinders for a second and say, like, forget about we never did it this way, or I don't know if this is even possible. You got to kind of think, and said, this is what I'd like to be able to do. I think this would solve the problem and then see, does that, you know, AI or other emerging technology capabilities allow me to actually do that? Right? That's where you can tap into your technologists and start having them help you understand, is this actually feasible or not? That's really the approach to take. So human creativity, one of our top five, and then understanding what technology can do and then decision-making steering the thing. You kind of had that look on your face, Maria, because it sounds like, okay, that sounds pretty straightforward and common sense. It can't be that simple, right? It absolutely is. As human beings, we want to overcomplicate things. Remember Occam's razor. The simplest solution is probably the correct one. <laughs> so if I'm working in IBM, I may not be setting the strategy for IBM but I can manage my department and experiment with ChatGPT unless you're one of the companies that's locked it down. Absolutely. I've had a couple of conversations recently with some universities. And so you have a lot of great faculty and professors doing some amazing research, getting patents, but it's all over the place. It's, it's like micro silo and all that. And one of the things we're talking about is, you know, you're looking for low hanging fruit. You could actually have chat GPT, read all the patents, read all the white papers, all the journal submissions, articles, and suddenly you have this conversational resource that if somebody's interested in something or wondering if you're working on this could ask, and it can explain simply and pull up the right documents and suddenly you're making it a lot easier to utilize that IP portfolio that you have. You don't have to worry about uh, this whole team that knows like IP law and knows about commercialization, but they don't understand these different domains like microbiology and try to figure out where's the matchmaking. So real time, let's play a game. One of my challenges has been we have 400 some podcasts. We need a page on our website that somebody can say, I want to learn about AI. How do I deploy ChatGPT on the website so somebody can say, give me an AI podcast or DE&I podcast, or who's the most exciting guest you've had recently? I like to drink bourbon. Can we create prompts that steer people to ask ChatGPT to help them? A hundred percent. I might blow your mind away here for a second, Maureen, because back in 2016, back in my IBM days, we actually worked with TED. Mm. Watson, watch all the TED, TEDx talks. And there was a special search engine you could go use and say, like, I'm interested in this subject or what that. And so Watson would not just bring up the right videos, it would tell you the segments of the videos. Oh, what you're interested in, you want to watch from 9 minutes, 14 seconds to 12 minutes and 48 seconds. 
that's your sweet spot, right? And then based on what you did, it says like, I know that you're really digging some of these things. These are some complimentary topics you might also be interested in. That was seven years ago. Think about what we can actually do today. With ChatGPT, we could put a little box on the webpage and suggest some prompts. Suggest some prompts. You probably have ChatGPT even generate partial transcripts as a little teaser to say, I think this is what you're looking for. Here's, you know, 10 seconds of it. What do you think? Okay. The head of our media team happens to be producing this podcast. So we have an assignment for this afternoon. <laughs> Don't hate me, guys. Sorry. <laughs> No, it solves a problem. This solves a problem that we've had for we have 400 hours of podcasts. Even I, as the host, don't remember 400 hours of conversations. So I need to count on ChatGPT to help me. That's why we have these tools. I don't think I can remember 400 hours of anything, to be honest. <laughs> What's the risk? I understand that sometimes it will cite things like the examples we had earlier of me being a CIO of something. So it's going to make mistakes. How do I understand the risk so I mitigate as much as possible? It's a great question. It, a lot of it is really based on what we call the variation factor. So if the more specific, the least amount of variation, the easier it is for AI to do the work. But like in your case, Maureen, with you know your bio, there are probably other people named Maureen Metcalf, right? And so it probably picked up on one of those who happened to be in this role at the Ohio Health System. So I don't know how many Maureens are out there, you know, maybe even a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> there is another Maureen Metcalf who's an author, but she writes about end of days. So we're writing different stuff. <laughs> that might be a little problematic, right? We're talking about a hybrid workforce and they might confuse it with end of days. <laughs> Zombies. It's the zombie workforce. <laughs> but that's really the challenge, right? You probably remember the, I think it was a New York Times journalist who wrote an article saying, I asked ChatGPT to tell me which five stocks to buy, saying, you know, I want them to you know, double in a year. And it's like, I got a bunch of gobbledygook. Well, ChatGPT, I don't think has been trained in stock investing, at least back then. But two, when it's doing its research, think about how many different stock investment advice approaches and stuff that it's actually picking up. There's so many, it's so much variation that it's hard for the AI to then be able to reconcile what's the most meaningful. Okay. So that's a really good point. Just like economic advisors, each president thinks something's going up or going down. If we knew the answer, we would master monetary policy differently. hundred percent. And so that's the challenge. And it goes back to what I was talking about the expectation that we think the AI already knows how to do these things and we have implicit to trust in the machine so we never expect it to be wrong but these are the challenges we have these great questions i remember early on just before chat gpt kind of exploded out people were asking like what's the meaning of life why are we here yeah. and all chat gpt is going to do is pull from a bunch of religions and philosophies and stuff and go like there's a lot of different answers here. I'm not really, really sure. So it seems like one of the biggest takeaways leaders should have, or any user, just that we're a leadership show, is know the limitations, just like I wouldn't ask you to be a gymnast. You're an advisor to the UN on AI, but you may not do a great job on a balance beam at the Olympics. We're definitely not. <laughs> but this goes to a management leader style where it's like you want to manage the people's weaknesses around, manage their strengths and manage around weaknesses. And it's the same thing with AI. It's a powerful tool, but we got to understand what it can actually do and what its limitations are. It's not sentient. It's not all-knowing. It's certainly not an oracle. It's an algorithm. Yeah, it's not always going to be perfect. I, you know, I freak people out when I use this example, so my apologies, but it's like when I ask people, what's the acceptable failure rate of an airplane? You know, the people that go, it's like, oh, zero, you know, it's like, it's impossible. <laughs> it can't be zero. There's a number. I assure everyone it's a really, really small number, but there is a number. And so we have to understand that, yeah, these things are not going to work perfectly and they're not going to be able to do everything. There's an acceptable failure rate with these AI systems. And I'm thinking on the airplane example, each part has a failure rate, but they shouldn't all fail at the same time. Let's hope not. <laughs> so far, I've never seen that happen. Doesn't mean it can't happen. But that's also the other thing is most of us have probably flown. All we see is you take off, okay, we land, okay, that's great. Or one thing goes wrong. You know, recently I had a flat tire on, on one of some of the landing gears we pulled away from the gate. 
You know, it was like, oh, oh groaning, oh, we're going to be late, disconnect, that kind of stuff. But most people don't realize that was one out of probably 2,000 things that could have gone wrong. Yeah. And better to know when you're taking off than when you're landing that your tire is not going to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like the risk is largely just like with any other employee. If I overestimate their skills, I may ask them to do things they shouldn't. What are the likely things we need to prepare for? One of the things I've heard that just everyone should be aware of is the voice cloning. And if your child calls and says, I've been abducted by, you know, fill in the blanks terrorists, go to the Find My Phone app and see if it's really your child or a deep fake. So we will have bad actors doing things. Unfortunately, I mean, they're good things. We call those digital twins where, you know, people know what they're doing. It's intentional using the likeness, you have the permissions. And you have some people doing that just to essentially increase their bandwidth. Like I was interviewed by Bernard Moore and he pretty freely acknowledged that he's actually got his own avatar. Sometimes like if you're trying to chat with them online or you got like some sort of video conference or something going on, it may not actually be him. It may actually be his digital twin. Hmm. So yeah. he can make himself more, you know, accessible in some capacity, but he does disclose whether it's really him or not. He does. Yeah. And, and you got some celebrities that are doing that as well. You actually see some celebrities now that they actually want the digital twins because they can do more commercials overseas, other they other roles. They're essentially creating more than twenty four hours in a day by doing it's the deep fakes that are more problematic because they're not asking for permission and the intent is malicious, right? They're trying to fake you out. And one of the things that we're seeing, you know, unfortunately I had a friend experienced this recently, is that looking for a job, you know, you hop onto like a you know, a video conference call. You think you're talking with an HR person and they look like their LinkedIn photo, but it's it's all an AI system. And all it is is trying to poke you for information. Maybe your address, maybe your social security number, maybe some other things for whatever nefarious schemes. Oh, interesting. I was at a presentation this weekend on AI. And one of the things the presenter said is Joe Rogan now has a complete AI generated podcast. It is numbered so you can tell that it's his AI podcast, but evidently completely AI generated, not Joe Rogan generated. So it does seem like the digital twins, if we're ethical about them, can do interesting things. They can. There's a uh, famous fashion school in New York. They actually have their students do fashion shows, but they're actually using AI tools. But the AI has also designed all the models and essentially simulates the entire fashion show. So even though it's not physically there, it exists completely in a virtual world, virtual models, virtual clothes, virtual photographers. But it gives the students then, you know, experience with these tools they're probably going to be using in the near future to the experience of what a fashion show is actually like and all the ins and outs beyond just designing the clothes, getting the models ready and prep and managing the media. This whole digital twin can be a really powerful thing for business leaders and in training and prep without needing physical space or time consuming of resource time. In the leadership space, I think back to SimCity. That simulation taught me a lot about city layout and design and planning. And when I bought my next house, I attended to some of the things I learned in SimCity and I still pay attention it seems like this now gives us a way to create learning tools that are accessible without extreme price. It's not expensive. You don't need the physical location. You don't need specialized equipment. GE and I think Rolls-Royce are using the metaverse and AI now so that design jet engines, they don't need to buy the materials. They can really take do more experimentation. And if the engine accidentally explodes, well, nobody gets hurt because it's all in the metaverse. It's interesting in that we have this technological tools to do this, but now like some of the work that I'm doing is we're combining cognitive science with AI and the metaverse to find new learning models. Because like a lot of people are saying we can use VR, do some of these things, but all we're doing is automating the existing learning model. We realize there's a different way people can actually learn and more effectively learn. And that's the real innovation that should be occurring with these tools. Can you say more about that? Because I'm thinking about junior achievement right now as teaching kids about jobs. 
and they wear the VR goggles. So they've partnered with Meta for places you can't take kids. Like you can't necessarily take young people to a construction site or behind the counter in a bank. So they're doing these virtual reality tours. This seems like the extension of what do I do next? Real simple example is law. I was shocked to realize how many lawyers or even law students have never been in a courtroom. You know, combining cognitive science, AI, and the metaverse, you can replicate the courtroom. You can actually replicate the judge, the jury. There's enough data out there so AI can actually mimic their mannerisms, how to probably respond in case, mimic the co-counsel. As they go in, they, they practice their arguments. They practice attacking co-counsel. You know, try out different case strategies and see how the judge may react, how the jury may react. So it's, it's really a commercial thing, realizing like, hey, this is going to work. This is not going to work. But it's a safe space to experiment in so that when they actually go to the real courtroom, especially if they've never been in one before. Where would a person like me get access to this kind of content? Hopefully I will never be in a courtroom. But there are places I will be. How do I learn to get better before I show up? It just depends on what you want to do and, well, the data and things like that. Well, the courtroom is one one example. Another thing, we're actually doing a lot of work in like mental health, especially Gen Z. Some of them get really anxious about looking for a job, especially going to an in-person job here. And so we've actually set it up that you're in a replica that looks like your room or your, your apartment or your house. And you actually have to go through these steps. You have this interview, you know, say at 10 a.m. to kind of get, get up, get dressed, you're prompted with decisions. And we'll see, especially early on, you're like, I don't want to get out of bed. Okay, you know, you're not forced to. But then it's like, what are you going to do next? Are you not going to go to the interview? Are you going to let them know? So they kind of go through all these steps. But there's a level of personalization, customization that has to occur to make that happen. Now, the metaverse technology, there's a lot of toolkits to this quickly and cheaply. But there's an actual psychological science. We actually work with psychologists and therapists to understand the different scenarios, the decision points, so people can actually practice this. And we've seen over time, the AI is also measuring the responses and, and changing things. You can't memorize your way through. But what ends up happening is they keep going through and going through and trying different things. They actually start building up coping skills. As a result, they start building up the resilience so that in real life, when they actually do get that in-person job interview, it doesn't become a triggering situation for them. There are so many things, everything from climate science to AI to name your thing that's impacting us much more quickly than we thought. In your top five, probably in the general skills bucket, how do I, as a human being, continue to re adapt and remain resilient because I'm going to have to keep changing? or I'm going to have to opt out. I think it's, it's creating a level of comfort and understanding that all these things that are happening are not meant to replace people. It's to actually try and get augmented. This is about hybrid intelligence. So it's creating that mindset and culture. What leaders are really supposed to do, you look throughout human history, the printing press, tractors, and humanity has kind of risen to the next challenge and we're going to take on that more complex work, that more value add work because we're free to move on. And I think that's the inflection point we're staring at. The challenge now though, is we've never had so much entertainment before either. I worry about the opportunities to continue advancing and taking humanity to the next level like we've always done, or is everyone go binge watch Yellowstone? Everyone has heard of or watched the Terminator shows and the apocalyptic variations of what could happen. And we've now got corporate leaders wanting to put a pause on some variations of AI. What do you think about some of that? It's the right problem to be thinking about. It's the wrong solution. Everything else aside, the feasibility to get every country, every company, every individual to pause, not going to happen. For sure, the bad actors aren't going to happen. We're used to being reactive about things. We're moving at such a rapid pace of change. We don't have time to react, be proactive. We have to find a different way of managing this. That means better at the scenario planning and anticipating different uses or misuses. It's more philosophy in the arts, actually, more thinking, more critical and creative thinking. That's a struggle that people have. But 
also call out the flip side that this whole Terminator and it's human versus machine is a very Western cultural mindset. If you look at like Eastern cultures, like particularly in Asia, they have a history in movies and books and all this stuff of robots and these AI systems were helpers. They were assisted. And so, you know, if you ever go to some of these countries or wonder why they're, they made such great strides in some of these areas is they don't look at it as something that to be shared. They look at it as a tool that can help create and build. We don't have enough of that mindset ourselves to recognize that. We're great at those threats. Not so good about thinking about the opportunities. Interesting, because we had an interview recently on supply chain, and they talked about even things like exoskeletons and all kinds of robot tools used in warehouses that keep humans from being injured, allow humans to work longer. At 50, if your job is moving boxes, you may not be able to do that anymore. If there's an exoskeleton and your job is moving boxes or loading airplanes or something, you can continue to have productive work of that sort. There are some really useful robotic companions. 100%. And I mean, AI, like all technology, is just a tool. You take that hammer, you can build, you can create with it, or you can destroy. The hammer is not inherently good or evil. It just is a hammer, right? It's about we as people and how we wield it. And I think that's where we struggle. Another conversation I had, evidently I've logged all my conversations waiting to talk to you. Another conversation I had was about this competing for talent, can't find enough people, all of that stuff. With AI companions, junior people will be able to do things that they couldn't have done because they didn't have the years of experience. Now we'll be able to hire, say, a three to five year person have them work with their AI companion who has a level of expertise in a thing, not general AI stuff, but expertise in engineering or law. And it changes the workforce mix and consequently the cost to companies to get tasks done. Let's run with the lawyer thing. Sorry, lawyers. We talk about some of the stuff. It's not that you suddenly just need lots and lots of less lawyers. Sorry, rest of the world. Then each of those, you know, like associate lawyers, a three-year associate lawyer could probably take on more work, a bigger caseload, which is helpful, or the nature of the work they're doing may change. It may not be so much legal research or you know, a lot of the court document filings and responses. They may be spending more time now learning to how do you interact and deal with clients. They may get an earlier start in their career on the rainmaking, like how do you, you know, generate sales. They may get more active in legal marketing or make it more active on project management estimating as, you know, clients are moving to fixed price modeling. There's still plenty of work to be done. It's just that work is probably going to be different. If I'm thinking of the job of talent management, how I think about my talent will evolve pretty quickly. It will, right? If you're a CEO of a company right now thinking like, can I replace my entire workforce, all my employees with AI robots, seems unlikely. Think about the knowledge workers alone. A lot of that is not really automatable. There's probably some tedious admin tasks you can take off their plates, but by doing that, you're freeing them to work on more value-add work. The digital twin's a good example, that I'm outsourcing to my digital twin all of my videos. I will save days of video shooting because Digital Twin Maureen is doing the videos. Microsoft Outlook now has this thing that if you enable it or your company enables it, it's keeping track of like some key tasks and dates in your emails. And so you get this summary email on, on Monday saying like, hey, these are the big things you got to remember for the week. I don't know about everybody else, but I get, like, oh, I get a couple hundred emails a day, scanning through a thousand emails trying to remember all the stuff or have my little long list and hopefully I remember all those things. I got a little tool that nicely summarizes all that work. And that's AI driven? Yeah. They're using their Cortana technology, I believe, for that. I used to get those summary emails. Now I have to find out why they're not happening. Because like you, I would get a prompt like you haven't responded to this in two days. I think LinkedIn does the same thing. It says you got a message and you haven't responded to somebody. Yeah, LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft's same technology. To your point, it still doesn't mean things don't show up or that I don't miss them. I don't miss having to spend, you know, 60 to 90 minutes at the start of the week, go through what happened last week and remind myself the, the key things to focus on. It's time that I can, I can spend on something else. Mm -hmm. They're built into the tools we already use. I don't have to go find a special app. 
it's there. I just have to tell it to stop talking to me if I don't want it. <laughs> As we are wrapping up, I'm going to invite our producer, Dan Michalko, to join the conversation. Dan, as you've listened to us, especially with a science background, what questions come to your mind that we haven't talked about? It's a question that you did talk about that I want to go to first from a science perspective, and that's the creativity. We're trying to parse out what creativity actually is from a biologic, a neurologic function. And as we nail that down better neurologically, will creativity continue to be the sole province of humans or will we be able to model it in an AI system? So that's one of your five skills that goes out the window and humans are down to just four. <laughs> You're already starting the countdown? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. This is the challenge that we have. The AI can only do what we teach it. We're only able to teach it what we understand, what we can commoditize. And mm -hmm. so far, we don't actually know how to teach creativity to other people. Hmm. Tell how you help someone like be imaginative, right? It's just intrinsically, we don't understand how that works in our own minds. We can't kind of replicate that or teach by example to an AI system. It's the same thing actually with sort of language. With an AI system, it has to hear about 100 million words or phrases to become fluent. Great. But for a human child, it only needs to hear about 10 million words of phrases. Hmm. So it's not the volume. It's not big data. We call it the medium data problem. There's certain words and phrases that trigger that cognitive learning. Mm -hmm. We just don't know what they are. And when we're learning our first language, we don't have the ability to communicate what's connecting with us. So there's just some of these mysteries of life, so to speak, that we can do certain things. We just don't understand how we're able to do them or how we learn to do them. So if we don't know how we learn, we can't teach an AI system. We have developed tools to enhance creativity, to spark it, to develop it further. If we're developing the tools, we can't be that far away from figuring out how it works. And if we can figure out how it works, can we then create an operating shell where AI can mimic the creativity? Maybe, but I think part of this goes to what we call artificial general intelligence. It's all narrow. It's only doing what we've mm -hmm. trained in. It's not thinking for itself. I think that's part of what sparks our, our creativity and our intelligence is if we have downtime or something else happens, we're able to kind of just connect those dots on our own, right? Like we, we talk about like sometimes, hey, you're stuck, you have writer's block or something, or, you know, you're, you're trying to solve this big market competition problem in South America. Sometimes just step back, do something different, go take a walk. And for some reason that, that sparks the idea or sparks the insight. We don't know why that works. And you can't tell an AI robot, like, just go take a walk and see what happens, right? <laughs> a little downtime for my bot friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, are we limited? Is AI limited by the physical method of computing so that it's not so much the algorithm, it's the ultimate limit, but the fact that we have these linear processors. So say when we get to quantum computing, where we can do non-Boolean processing, would that be a big advancement for AI and maybe bring it closer to the way humans think? Yes and no. It would be a big advancement for AI in that it can consume a lot more data more rapidly. And so in theory, you can find a lot more in connection between the variables, but that doesn't necessarily translate to creativity. You know, I, I worked with Bon Appetit eight, nine years ago on using AI, and they wanted to see, could AI come up with original like food recipes? So, and it, it did, it was coming, I remember the first thing we asked for was like a healthy barbecue sauce. And I was like, well, what do you mean by healthy? Good question. Mm. High fiber, low calorie. Came back with this list of ingredients like butternut squash and tiramisu, like things you don't find barbecue sauce. So like, yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't eat, doesn't understand the flavor, but we made it. Hmm. It tasted like barbecue sauce and it was healthy. We we're thinking about that. Like, how did it know that? Because it was coming up with other things like the chocolate Austrian burrito. And the, it was coming up with like ingredient combinations that, you know, most people really aren't familiar with or sound bizarre. That's actually the advantage the AI had over us. It didn't have kind of this bias of like, well, you don't mix those foods together. Everything it did is based on chemistry. We taught it the chemical combinations that produce certain flavors, nutrients, aromas, colors, and what's aesthetically appealing to humans. And so it can actually go through millions of different combinations and come up with stuff that 50,000 years of human history, we didn't think. That's the advantage. It's just 
the ability to sift through all those combinations, all that data so quickly to identify those opportunities. Now, as an unstoppable foodie, I love that idea. <laughs> so now let's circle back to leaders and leadership. Do you have any recommendations? We talked about leading hybrid workforce. Is there a way for me and for Dan and for all of our listeners who happen to lead people, how can we use AI technology to be better leaders? It's a great question. I think there's been a lot of focus on leadership, on market strategy, analyzing competitors, better marketing our products, and some of these things. They're very kind of operational, automated types of thinking. But what we started seeing some of these smarter leaders do is they've learned that some of these AI systems have been taught psychology, they've been taught neurolinguistics, and in fact, you can actually now focus and know each person, like all your leadership team, your direct reports, customers, stakeholders, you know each of them like a best friend. The AI can help synthesize and say, this is how they learn things. You know, Maureen cares more about the value add and the positioning in the market, whereas Dan cares more about the cost, you know, the materials involved, whereas Neil cares more about a social enterprise footprint. Now you know what to talk about with each person, connect with those values, and even coach you on which specific words to use that are going to resonate with that person. So that's a much more effective leadership message at an individual level. Now, does that affect the nonverbal communication that humans rely on so much? Can it compensate for that by so carefully choosing the language, for example? So that's an interesting question because there are AI systems that have learned kinesiology. So AI has become really good at reading our emotional states, actually better than most humans are. But trying to teach people how to mimic the right body language is proven to be more difficult, right? So like the way you're communicating, because we each have our own different body language styles. And Neil throws his hands up a lot because I'm from New York. That's how we talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, waving our hands around is part, part of that thing. It's, it's kind of hard for me, like, well, do that. This person finds that distracting. It's not natural for me to just put my hands to next to my sides here and not move them. That's why that part's a little bit more difficult for actually us to replicate, even if we get that advice. Well, and also the question of authenticity. How do we maintain Neil moves his hands with, I know when I'm talking to Neil, if he's moving his hands, he's being Neil. He's not the Neil avatar. There is something comforting about knowing someone is genuinely being themselves. Body language seems like one of the places where we get a sense of who someone is, even if we don't uh, cognitively process it. I would be, I think, disturbed if I'm interacting with people and they start behaving differently. There's a lot of truth to that, Maureen. You know, and also that it depends on how well you know the other person. However, there's the old psychological technique that, like, if you're talking with somebody, mirror, cross their hands, you cross your hands. They lean forward, you lean forward. And the reason for doing that is it actually weirdly makes other people feel like you're more connected. They're like, well, they're kind of like I am. And we're all kind of looking for those commonalities. What do you see coming? What do you anticipate? One of the things I'm hoping for is a little bit of AI coaching. I know it's, some of it exists in the sales space that I can send my AI to listen to a sales call and it can calibrate for the responses it's getting. Yeah, that I think goes into some of the AI systems that are being designed around to make you a more effective people manager as well as kind of a cheerleader and communicator is probably the best word, right? Communicate your vision, communicate the goals. So the AI communication coach, I, you know, neurolinguistics, psychology is some of that, but also the ability to break people down by psychographics so you can actually tune better what their, their interests or hobbies or motivations are. So you can just connect them. At the end of the day, that's what leaders actually need to do. You got the grandiose vision, you got your shameless goals and the objectives, and you're trying to figure out how do I motivate each person to accomplish those, find the best paths to make that forward. We all know that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. Everybody has different motivations, everybody has a different agenda, everybody has different career goals. But imagine you have a little AI concierge that knows all those things about each of your employees. And so as you're interacting with them, it's kind of whispering in your ear, like, oh, with this person, this is what you got to do. It's almost like you've ever watched that show Veep, 
Julia Dreyfus's character had that one character that was always hovering, knew everybody. And so when me and them shaking a whisper, this is so-and-so, they have a six-year-old son and they just got, you know, named to this chair, blah, blah, blah. But she can start saying that, you know, try and connect with them. We have gained the close to having a digital version of that with AI. We do assessments with leaders. I could feed in various kinds of assessments to an AI, help it understand where someone is likely to have pitfalls. Yeah. Mindset. These are the things you should be focusing on. This person is probably going to be a negative stakeholder. This person's on the fence. Here's some things you can try and convince them. Again, this whole idea of convergence, taking AI with the metaverse and cognitive science, the freedom to kind of experiment, kind of war game some of these things out, war game a critical meeting or war game a, a thing with competing with this competitor in a workshop. What we found is that not just comes up with better ideas, but it helps kind of show the flaws or gaps in your own strategy and vision. So you have many times the freedom to test out any idea and you're being forced to look at the good and the bad. That trains decision-making. Yeah. What else do you want our listeners to be thinking about so they're equipped? I'd say there's there's three things you should be doing right now. One is just basic understanding of what some of these especially generative AI tools are doing, or at least having your employees start worrying about this. Two, looking for opportunities. And think about low-hanging fruit. Look at small things just to get started. And three, in all honesty, you got to do it now because you're already behind the curve. And starting today, you're, you're probably about a year or two behind your competitors. So when you do this, don't think about playing catch up. Think about leapfrog. So how do I leapfrog my competitors? In our case, in the leadership space, we'll put my digital twin on that. Let's see what she comes up with. There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And we have another conversation that will be scheduled around when our book comes out. So for listeners, Neil is collaborating on our Innovative Leadership Essentials book with a focus on leading in a hybrid workforce. So we will be hearing from Neil again when the book is ready to launch. Well, I can't wait. It'll be exciting. So thank you. Thank you to our listeners. We hope you are finding this entertaining and compelling and the invitation to how do I not only get on the AI conversation, but leapfrog my competitors so that I am positioned to be as effective as possible for the longest period of time over as we're thinking about our work lives. And Dan's going to work till he's 100, so he's got to be productive for a long time still. <laughs> Neil, how would listeners connect with you? Oh, listeners can find me on my website, which is just my name, neilsohoda.com. And I actually have a LinkedIn newsletter they can subscribe to called uh, Disrupting the Box that talks about the latest advancements of AI and the metaverse in business. Why is it out of the box thinking? Why not just change the box? Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you.